morning. Um, our passage today comes from Matthew 16, 13 through 20. And I'll be reading from the ESV. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. This is the word of the Lord. May the Lord bless the reading and preaching of his word. Thank you, Sarah. So several weeks ago, I... Excuse me. Several weeks ago, I was walking to the post office, and uh, as I was getting pretty much in front of the post office, there was a gentleman who was coming out. He was getting ready to get inside of his vehicle, and we made eye contact. And so, you know, want to be want to be cordial. So, hey, how's it going? And and he was talking. I'm good. How are you? And I'm like. I think we're having a conversation here. And so we talked for just a little bit. And in that span of time, I, I found out that this gentleman was uh, from Ellsbury, had pretty much, with the exception of a period of time when he, when he moved away, uh, he'd pretty much lived here all of his life. And so if I meet someone in town that I've never met before, depending on the nature of the conversation, I always want to extend an invitation to First Baptist. And, and so I preface that with, do you attend any of the churches here in town? And he said, well, I visited all of them at one point, pretty much, but never found one that was a, an actual fit for me. And so my church is really outdoors. I like to spend a lot of time outside, and that's, where, that's kind of where my church is. And uh, that's not the first time that I've heard a remark like that. I've heard people say, oh, my, my church is in my deer stand. When I'm hunting, I have such a, such a peaceful experience. That's, that's my church. Or I've had conversations with people who've said, well, my church is on my tractor. When I'm out there uh, in the field, that's, that's my, my church. And, and, I, and I, never, I never harangue these people. Uh, but, but I want to ask them. What is it that you're worshiping at your church? And how is it that you're worshiping? And where do you get the idea that God 
wanted you to worship him that way. Now, depending on what a person calls themselves, spiritually speaking, there's a number of ways that they could answer those questions. But if a person calls themselves a Christian, there are specific answers to those questions. There are some answers that are correct. And all other answers are not second opinions. They are wrong. That's primarily what we've been focusing on in our sermons this year. What are the right answers? What are the things that we believe as Christians? What, what, what are the beliefs that make us Christian, that are distinctly Christian beliefs? And so we've talked about a number of things so far. We've talked about the Bible the fact that the 66 books of the Bible are the inerrant, infallible word of God, that that is our highest authority, and it is the final authority about everything regarding life and worship and God and us and salvation. We've talked about our belief in the Blessed Trinity, which Pastor Greg referenced in the beginning of his prayer, that we worship one God in Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and Trinity in unity, neither dividing the persons nor confounding the, the substance of them. We talked about the fact that we believe that God created all things out of nothing, that before there was anything, there was God, and then God made all things, that he is its creator, and that he made mankind, and that he man, made mankind to worship him and to have relationship with him, but mankind sinned against God, they disobeyed God, and this act of sin brought a curse on God's good creation, and now all humanity is under that curse and guilty of sin and under God's wrath. We talked about the person of Jesus Christ, that, that God had a plan to redeem a people for himself, and that God did the work, that God sent his son, the third person of the Trinity, to the earth. He was born as a baby with a human mother, but not a human father. He was conceived of the Holy Spirit so that he was fully God and fully man. He lived a perfect life of obedience to God. And then we talked about the work of Jesus Christ, that after fulfilling all of God's commands, Jesus gave himself as a substitute for sinners, that he died on a cross bearing the punishment for sins that we deserve. And three days later, God raised him from the dead bodily. And having been raised bodily, Jesus ascended into heaven where he's been exalted and seated at the right hand of the Father. Then we talked about the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, that God has given the Spirit to his Son, and the Son has given the Spirit to everyone who believes in him, that Christians are inhabited by the Holy Spirit, sealed or marked with the Holy Spirit as a guarantee of their future salvation, the resurrection of their body and eternity with God on a perfect earth. And then last week we talked about the forgiveness of sins, that God forgives sinners, that the forgiveness of sins is at the very heart of the gospel, that everyone who will repent or turn away from their godlessness, from their independence, from God, their disobedience to God, and will take hold of by trust, Jesus Christ will be forgiven of their sins, that Jesus' 
death on the cross was a once-for-all sacrifice or atonement to wash away sins. And each week, we've had a summary statement of sorts, not unlike the Christian creeds from the first few centuries of Christianity, which we refer to as the great tradition that further underscores what Christians have uniformly and universally believed. And today we're going to look at another belief that is core to being a Christian, which relates to how God is to be worshipped and how we are to grow in and live out the faith. And uh, that is the belief in the church. And here's our summary statement. We believe in the church of the living God, the household of God, which Christ is building, of which he is the head, comprised of all true believers in heaven and earth, who are also called saints, against which the gates of hell will not prevail, demonstrated visibly in local congregations, of which no Christian has the right to refrain. Now here's what that means. It means that God has chosen for himself a people out of all the peoples of the earth. And that Jesus has purchased these people by his blood shed on the cross for regeneration by the Holy Spirit. He has purchased them so that they would be born again. And being brought from death to life, they've been called out of the world and they've been set apart. And they are holy to God. Being then God's people, they are to assemble under the authority of Jesus for the worship of God and service to him. And being spiritually joined to Jesus by faith, they are properly called the body of Christ. And because Jesus has overcome sin and death, neither death nor the power of the devil can overcome his people or the church. And since Christians will not be isolated from the church in heaven, the people of God in heaven, when their souls depart their bodies, then no true Christian should live out his calling in isolation from the church on earth. Now, Christians have historically, uniformly, and universally believed in the great significance of the church for the plan of God, and for the life of the believer. Writing in the early 200s or 3rd century, Cyprian, the bishop of Carthage, again, a bishop was like a pastor of pastors in a city, uh, Cyprian wrote, no one can have God for his father who does not have the church for his mother. Now, someone might say, well, that sounds very Roman Catholic. Okay, well, Protestant reformer Martin Luther wrote, to gather with God's people in united adoration of the Father is as necessary to the Christian life as prayer. Again, going back to Ignatius, written in 110 AD, Ignatius wrote, For if the prayer of one or two possesses such power, how much more of the bishop and the whole church? He, therefore, that does not assemble with the church has even by this revealed his pride and condemned himself. Fast forwarding to another Protestant reformer, John Calvin in his lengthy book, The Institutes of the Christian Religion, makes a couple statements about the necessity of the church. He says, 
it is always fatally dangerous to be separated from the church. Likewise, he writes, he who voluntarily deserts the external communion of the church where the word of God is preached and the sacraments are administered is without any excuse. And last, Calvin said, we are as ready to confess as they are that those who abandon the church, the common mother of the faithful, the pillar and ground of the truth, revolt from Christ also. Fast forwarding, yet still the Westminster Confession of Faith, which was written in the 1640s, uh, the result of an assembly of 121 ministers. And by the way, this is the official statement of faith of the Church of England and all the Presbyterian bodies in the world today. It says, the purest churches under heaven are subject both to mixture and error. And some have so degenerated as to become no churches of Christ, but synagogues of Satan. Nevertheless, there shall be always a church on earth to worship God according to his will. And then fast forwarding present day, seminary professor Michael Horton writes, the visible church is where you will find Christ's kingdom on earth. And to disregard the kingdom is to disregard its king. And then rewinding just a little bit, last but not least, 19th century British Baptist Charles Spurgeon, affectionately called the Prince of Preachers by people of multiple denominations and, and faith backgrounds. Spurgeon said, I know there are some who say, well, I've given myself to the Lord, but I don't intend to give myself to any church. I say, now why not? And they answer, because I can be just as good a Christian without it. I say, are you quite clear about that? You can be as good a Christian by disobedience to your Lord's commands as by being obedient. There's a brick. What is the brick made for? It's made to build a house. It is of no use for the brick to tell you that it's just as good a brick while it's kicking about on the ground by itself as it would be as part of a house. Actually, it's a good-for-nothing brick. So you Rolling Stone Christians, I don't believe that you're answering the purpose for which Christ saved you. You're living contrary to the life which Christ would have you live. And you are much to blame for the injury you do. So we can see from the church fathers to the reformers to the prince of preachers to current-day Christians that we have believed that God has a church and that the church is visible in local congregations and that every believer has a responsibility to join himself to the people of God in those congregations as the church. But why have Christians historically believed this? And why do we continue to believe this to this very day? And the answer is, because that's what the Bible teaches us. Beginning with our scripture from before the sermon today, we see Jesus with the apostles, and he poses to them this question, who do men say that I am? And their response is, well, some say Elijah, who was a prophet in the Old Testament. <coughs> Excuse me. Others say <coughs> Jeremiah, or one of the other prophets. 
And Jesus says, but what about you? You know me best. Who do you say that I am? And Peter speaks up. And Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. For flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you this, you are Peter, a rock. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And I give you authority in it to admit or to expel. That's basically the, the summary of what he's saying there. Now, whether it is the revelation of Jesus as the Messiah, that he is the, the Christ, the anointed one promised in the Old Testament, whether that is the rock that Jesus is going to build his church on, or whether it's Peter as chief of the apostles and representative of the authority of the, of the apostles who wrote the New Testament scriptures, whether it's one or the other, two points are clear. <clears throat> Jesus is the one building the church. Amen. And the gates of hell, which hell there can also be the word, it is the word Hades. It could simply be as interpreted as Hades, which means the grave or the place of the dead or the underworld. The second thing that's clear is that the gates of hell or Hades cannot stop or the devil cannot stop or impede Christ's building of the church. Tertullian once said that the, the blood of the martyrs is the, is the seed of the church, meaning you kill Christians and you're just scattering the seed. Death will not stop Christ building his church. And so that, that the church that Jesus is building is made up of people is confirmed by the Apostle Peter's description of the purpose and calling of those who had become Christians, as we read about in 1 Peter excuse me, 2, verses 9 and 10. Peter says, But you, Christians, are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And so as a race, a people, a priesthood, and a nation, it is clear that redemption through Christ was to be both identifying for the people of God and unifying for Christians, that they are a race together, a priesthood together, a nation together, a people together, which entails associating, but it also entails assembling together. The Apostle Paul articulates this as well in the opening lines of his first letter to the Corinthians, where he says in verse 2 of chapter 1, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified or set apart in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, again, that's holy ones, 
together with all those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord. What he's saying here is the church is a visible assembly of Christians in a specific place who are called to be holy because of what Jesus has done for them. Paul furthers this point in chapter 6 of that letter where he states in verses 9 through 13, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother or Christian. If he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reveler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you, Christians, are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. You see, it is not simply anyone who calls themselves a Christian who is to be part of the church but those who actually resemble a Christian, which means little Christ. Those who are trusting in Christ for the forgiveness of sins and are endeavoring or striving to obey his commands and become more like him. There is a clear distinction to be made between who is the church and who is not, or between the church and the world. 1 Timothy 3, we see why the nature And the makeup of the church matters. In verses 14 through 16, Paul writes to Timothy, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. The church, Paul says here, is God's family, and it represents God, and it upholds the truth of Scripture. This is why Paul gives such detailed instructions in the first two chapters of this letter on everything from confronting false teachers to public prayer to men's and women's roles in the teaching ministry of the church to the qualifications of church leaders. To the point that Paul says any man who wants to be a pastor or an elder, same thing, must have a track record of teaching his children to obey. Because, in verse 5, if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? You see, the church reflects God. And it reflects Christ. In Ephesians 2, Paul says that God has exalted Jesus to his right hand after his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension into heaven. And then in verses 22 through 23, he writes, And he put, that's God, put all things under his, that's Jesus, his feet, and gave him, Jesus, as head over all things for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. 
You see, this isn't a simple reference to individual believers living out their personal, private faith or to something a group of believers does together for an hour on Sunday mornings. This, this is the language of the New Testament. And the language of the New Testament is communal. It communicates the ideas of family, of citizenship, of loyalty, and of belonging. Paul speaks later in this letter in chapter 4, verses 1 through 6, and says, I therefore a prisoner of the Lord. Paul had been arrested for his faith and for preaching the gospel. I a prisoner for the Lord urge you I'm pleading with you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. The apostles urging here, his instruction is, is relational in nature. He calls them to bear with one another in love, put up with one another out of love. Let love be the motivation. Maintain the unity of the spirit, the bond of peace. Keep the peace. Be united in peace. He says there's, there's one body, not many bodies. There's one body of Christ. There's only one spirit. Not many spirits that Christians have. There's only one hope. We're all going to the same place. Only one Lord. We all worship the same God. Only one Christian faith. You have it or you don't. Only one baptism that shows you're a Christian. All the things that he's emphasizing here are the things they have in common. And he's saying, you have all this in common, so you should get along with one another. Have unity amongst yourselves. This is why the writer of Hebrews says in chapter 10, verses 24 through 25, and let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. You see, it's impossible to be the church and carry out this kind of one another ministry and unity and encouragement and not be known by other Christians or not assemble with other Christians, which is why John the Apostle, the last of the apostles to die, would later write of those who had apostatized or abandoned the faith in verse 2 or 19 of chapter 2 of 1 John, he would say, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out with us that it might become plain that they all are not of us. And so why had some broken off from the church? Why had some distanced themselves, removed themselves, quit gathering with the church. Well, according to John, who is speaking under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he says, well, it's to prove that they weren't really Christians to begin with. They were false professors. So I, I hope from the scriptures we've plainly seen that, that God has a church, that Christ is the head of it, that Christians compose it, that death can't defeat it, and that no Christian should refrain or isolate themselves from it. But why does it matter? 
Why does it matter that we see this in Scripture and believe it for ourselves and most importantly, be moved to give ourselves to Christ and to his church? Why can't we just consume spiritual resources, podcasts, books, Christian music, Christian radio, and, and just do our own thing? Or, or why can't we just fly in under the radar at, at some large gathering and remain anonymous, just blending into the crowd, punching in and punching out? Why is, that, why is that a problem? Why does it matter that we believe in the church and give ourselves to Christ and to his church? Let me give you four quick reasons. The first is that we cannot grow in faith and a love for God while ignoring the thing of greatest importance to him on the earth. What is of greatest importance to God on the earth? Is it rocks or dirt or trees or animals? We'd say, no, it's people. God made people in his image. But is it all people equally? When you look at the language of scripture, you see all people have worth and value. They're made in the image of God. But then we see this group that's spoken of with particular affection and detail. And the title given to that group is the elect. And we're told that God chose the elect from before the foundation of the earth. Now, whatever you believe about the doctrine of election, you can't deny the Bible talks about this group of people that are called the elect. And there are two groups, the elect and those who are not. Or we would say Christians and those who are not. And the Bible doesn't talk about the elect as, well, this elect person way over here and this elect person way over here and this elect person down here, but it talks about them as the church and the church the word church ecclesia is not a christian word in origin it's a greek word that just means assembly so when the people of ephesus had a political assembly they had an ecclesia ecclesia they had a a church but christians said no we are the ecclesia we are the assembly of the people of god and so God cares about people. The elect are those who he has chosen for himself. They're gathered together as the assembly of God's people. So the most important thing to God on this earth is the assembly of God's people or the church. And so we cannot love God and grow in our faith and not care about what he cares about. The second reason it matters is we cannot obey the one another commandments of Jesus by ourselves, which affects our love for Jesus. All throughout the New Testament, we see these commands. They're not suggestions. They're commands. Love one another. Bear one another's burdens. And on and on and on. If you're curious, go home and use Google. Type out one another commands. You'll be surprised how many commands we have Related to other Christians. Jesus says, John 13, 34, love one another by this. All men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Jesus elsewhere said, if you love me, you'll obey my commandments. You can't do the one another's and not be known and not be around other Christians. You need some intentionality. We need some identifiable people to feel responsible for. And if we don't do that, not only are we disobeying, but Jesus said, if you love me, 
you'll obey my commandments. It will affect our love for Jesus. Third reason is that we miss out on God's gifts and care. If we don't believe this, we'll miss out on God's gifts and care. Ephesians 4 says that when Jesus rose from the dead, led captivity captive, and ascended on high, he gave gifts to men. What are the gifts that he gave, that he gave to the church? And it says, apostles, prophets, teachers, pastor, teachers, evangelists. The gifts that God gave to the church in that passage are people who are ministering. And so you could say, well, can I just receive those gifts via podcasts? Can I just receive those gifts via YouTube? Okay, maybe you can receive some of the teaching gifts that way by, by not knowing people. But then in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, it says that God has given every Christian gifts and the purpose of every Christian's gift is to build up every Christian. And so that means if you only use podcasts and YouTube, then there's lots of us who will never have a podcast or be on YouTube that have gifts that God has given us for the benefit of other Christians. That also means you have a gift, if you're a Christian, that has been given to you for the benefit of other Christians, and you're missing out on those gifts, but you're also missing out on care. Hebrews chapter 13 says that Christians are to submit to their leaders who are going to have to give an account to God as those who are keeping watch over their souls. And so if you're not, if you don't believe in the church and you don't give yourself to Christ in the church and you're not a part of a church, who's keeping watch over your soul? Nobody, right? What pastor says, I'm responsible for you. I'm going to have to stand before God someday and say, yeah, Laurel and Jerry Keevan prayed for them. They were here, saw them growing. Yes, Lord, I, I saw it. Who's going to give an account for you? And the fourth reason it matters is if you don't believe in the church, if we don't believe in the church, we miss out on participation in Christ. What in the world do I mean by that? Let me chop this up real quick. There are three predominant views about the Lord's Supper under the umbrella of Christianity. The one view is, is prominent in the Roman Catholic and, and Orthodox churches. And it says that when the priest holds up the elements and prays over them, they, they still look like bread and, and wine or bread and juice, but they actually have turned into the physical body and blood of Jesus. That's the, the, the Roman and the Orthodox view. There's, so it, they, they call it the real presence, meaning real body and blood. Then there is the Reformed view. Presbyterians and Reformed Baptists, this is, this is the view that our church's confession of faith uh, embraces. And it says, no, Jesus has a body, but his body is in heaven. And, and these, these elements are only bread and juice. But Christ's spirit is here with us, and that's the real presence of Christ. And as we eat and drink in faith, we are, we are communing with Christ, and his spirit is applying to us all the benefits of our salvation. Amen. Then there's a third view, the memorialist view. 
And, and that view is they're only bread and juice, and it's only a picture that reminds us. There, there's no more of the Holy Spirit present in communion than, than anywhere else. It's just a picture, a reminder. It's just a memorial. Now, we land here in this middle place. And because we see that in Scripture, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, it says the, the cup that we bless, the bread that we eat, is it not a koinonia, a fellowship, a sharing, a participation in the body of Christ? Likewise, it says when you eat and drink from things that have been sacrificed to idols, you're communing with demons. He chastises them for for participating in anything that's been associated with temple worship. And the reason, he says, you are participating with demons. So things connected to temple worship of false gods is communing with demons. Things connected with the Lord's Supper is communing with Christ. And the Lord's Supper is not something that we do on our own. The only proper context for the Lord's Supper is the assembly of God's people or the church. So therefore, if we don't believe the church matters and we don't give ourselves to Christ and his church, then we miss out on participating in Christ through the Lord's Supper. Do you believe in the church? Do you believe in the importance and the significance of it to God and to the life of Christians? If you do, does that show on your calendar? Does that show on your bake statement? Maybe today you've heard all of this and, and you kind of feel like an, an outsider because you, you, you're not all in yet. You haven't said, I'm a Christian, I'm waving the flag, I've been baptized. And so, so you hear this message and you feel like a little bit of an outsider. And to some degree, that's right. You should. The church is clearly made up of Christians who have surrendered to Christ and been obedient in baptism. But there's good news. You don't have to feel like an outsider because the gospel is an invitation for outsiders to become insiders. The gospel is an invitation that whosoever would believe in him should not perish away from the glory of God and the, the, the beauty and the majesty and the happiness of God in heaven and instead the wrath of God in hell should not perish but have everlasting life. So if you feel like an outsider, Jesus says, become an insider. Come and take hold of me. Anyone can get in on this. And if you'd say, I have, I have gotten in on this. I, I am a Christian and I've obeyed Christ in baptism, followed him in baptism. If you'd say that, but you've not joined yourself either to this church or to one somewhere else, then why not? If you're a Christian, you're a follower of Christ, right? Well, what do you think Jesus would want you to do? If you're following him, not yourself, what do you think he wants you to do? Would you go with me to the Lord in prayer this morning? Father, we thank you for the beauty 
of your design, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, by which Ephesians chapter 3, verse 10 tells us that your wisdom is displayed in the heavenly places. Angels and demons alike, rulers and authorities and principalities and powers are all seeing the rightness of God's ways and God's plans in the church according to your word. And so, Father, I pray that the things that matter most to you would matter most to us. I pray for every person in this room today that they would receive that offer extended in the gospel to repent and believe and to move from being an outsider to an insider, from an enemy of God to a child of God. And I pray for every Christian in this room today that they would realize the inheritance in the saints. Scripture says, in the saints. We have been given so much in the church, in the people of God. Lord, help us not to have an anemic view of the church, of Christianity, of Sunday mornings, but to realize the riches and the beauty of your plan. Father, work in all of us. Help us, help us all to know Christ and to follow him in obedience in all the ways of our lives so that we might worship you and serve you in the ways that you desire. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.